Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Okay, let's just cut to the chase. Today's show is actually kind of a special edition show. If you are here in the United States, you know that what's taking over all the news, all the major media outlets is Hurricane Ida. And now in the midst, we have Hurricane Larry and all these natural disasters. And my DMs lately have been flooded with people asking what happens to animals during these natural disasters. What do zoos do? What do other wildlife parks do? Do you yourself have plans in case a hurricane were to come hit? Now, luckily, I live in Idaho, so we do not experience hurricanes. And honestly, I felt like I wasn't the right person to respond to a lot of these questions to talk about what zoos do during natural disasters because I'm in Idaho. We really don't deal with these with large disasters like tornadoes or hurricanes. So instead of answering it myself, I thought I would have a conversation with my friend, Ron McGill. Ron McGill is just a legend. He is the spokesperson and the ambassador and communications director for Zoo Miami. And he has been at Zoo Miami for over 40 years. I'm sure you all know who Ron is. He has been in the media for years. He is, I mean, seriously, this is the guy to ask the question to because he's in Miami where, I'll tell you what, they deal with a lot of natural disasters. Ron comes on the show to talk about what Zoo Miami did during times when they were faced with natural disasters. One incident he talks about, of course, is Hurricane Andrew back in 1992. And the way that Ron describes how they went through this is just, my mind was blown. Um, Ron is such a good storyteller and you literally feel like you're right there with him as he is describing what was, you know, the single biggest disaster in Zoo Miami history. Hurricane Andrew tore through that zoo. It was devastating. And Ron relives it and goes over what they did. He goes over things that they learned. And I think this is really helpful for anyone working at a facility right now who is gearing up for a natural disaster or anyone who is just interested in how they can help their local facility. This is the podcast to listen to. So I highly recommend it, especially since this podcast is so timely with Hurricane Ida and Hurricane Larry. Now, before we get to the full interview, I encourage you as always to rate and review the show. We appreciate it. The numbers of this podcast are climbing, which is amazing. We are the top nature podcast, one of the top in the world, and that's because of you. So thank you for writing a review. Please make sure to share this podcast too with family and friends. Word of mouth is the best way for this podcast to grow. And as always, I encourage you to join us for the after show. If you are a fan of the show and you want to get the full interview, join us over at patreon.com slash animals to the max. We have hours of bonus content that only you, the Patreon, can actually listen to. So all you have to do is just check that out. I will include the links in the show notes. And this is a great bonus episode with Ron. I asked Ron the number one animal he would be terrified of to get loose during a natural disaster at Zoo Miami. And he had 3,000 animals to pick from, and he quickly answered the one animal. He said, oh my goodness, this is the animal I would not want to get out during a disaster. So make sure to join us for that. We also go into a little bit about what's going on in the world of 
television and working with animal ambassadors on TV, there are some things changing that you need to know about. So join us for the after show. With that said, let's get to it. Ron, welcome to the show. Uh, Corbin, it's great to be here. I'm far from a legend, but I'm happy to speak with you. <laughs> Dude, you are a legend. And I'll tell you what, I appreciate you coming on the show. Let me just introduce you uh, to listeners maybe who haven't heard our previous episode or don't know what you do, but you are the spokesperson for Zoo Miami and the communications director. You're a Nikon ambassador. You've been working with animals for over 30 plus years. Is that right? Actually, 40. This is my 42nd year at the zoo. Okay, so I was going to say 40, but I didn't want to offend you. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm old as dirt. He's, no, been, no me. <laughs> he's been he's been working with animals for over 100 years. And I'm kidding. Go. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I, I appreciate you jumping on because, you know, right now we are in the midst of some hurricanes going on in the United States. And so yeah. many people are DMing me, asking me about what zoos do during hurricanes. And I thought... I just don't feel right answering it because I, I'm here in Idaho. We don't have too many hurricanes. And I figured man, I need to call Ron and see if he wants to come on because boy, oh boy, have you guys dealt with some weather issues in the, uh, in, in the past. So we, cer we certainly have. I mean, you know, back in 92, Hurricane Andrew probably became the iconic storm to define how zoos were going to deal with hurricanes because mm -hmm. until then there really wasn't any, any, you know, definitive, episode with a hurricane where zoos can could react to it i mean i mean certainly zoos some of the more primitive primitive zoos dealt with those storms you know back in the 60s and and 70s but uh, we really were the first modern zoo to to deal with a major hurricane and a major hurricane it was i mean hurricane andrew at the time was the single greatest natural disaster in the history of our country and the north eye wall of that storm came right through zoo miami back then we were called miami metro zoo but it came right through here and i can tell you you know we have a monorail that runs a couple of miles over the zoo. This is welded metal, like anybody's ever been to Disney World, okay? You see the monorail, the monorail goes on a track. Those winds were so destructive, they took the monorail track, knocked it off, twisted it like a coat hanger, took the, 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 the metal iron stanchions that the monorail track stood on and curled them like a pretzel. So oh. you understand the strength of these winds. I mean, we had, uh, we had pieces of wood that went right through the trunks of trees like missiles. So it was really a catastrophic storm in every sense of the word. Now, when that storm came through here, I'd already been working here over a decade. I'm going to tell you, Corbin, when I got here that morning, and I came right after the morning, uh, right after the storm subsided in the morning, a drive that normally took me 10 to 15 minutes took me over an hour as I was circumventing all these huge, you know, power lines. But I'm not talking about like wood telephone poles. Here in Miami, I'm talking about these concrete 75 foot, you know, structures that were split like they were made out of toothpicks across the road, lines everywhere. I mean, I, I drive by a small executive airport on the way to work. There were planes twisted around trees. It was one of the most surreal sights I'll ever remember in my life. And then as I was coming up across the zoo, I remember seeing there was a troop of macaques running down the middle of the main street and they weren't even our macaques. This is what really freaked me out. I'm going, those are monkeys, but those are not our monkeys. And I didn't realize at the time that the University of Miami had a primate lab right next to us. And all of those primates got out. And, and that became even a bigger story because then somebody started spreading a rumor that those were primates that were used for AIDS research. People started oh. coming out and shooting them with shotguns because they said they had AIDS. It was, it was, 
it was like a nightmare movie of the week. Um, so yes, we went through a lot here and uh, we had to learn through experience, you know, what were the things that we did well, which we did a lot of things well, uh, but there were things that uh, we realized we could have done better afterwards. Okay, so prepping for Hurricane Andrew. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you guys, how much time did you have to prepare and what did you do to prepare for all the animals? Because the Zoo Miami is huge. I mean, how many animals do you guys It's a big park. House? We have about 3,000 animals here. Holy. Okay. Uh, now, now, the thing is, the good thing, if there's a good thing about hurricanes, Corbin, is that they give you warning. Mm. You have warning. It's not like an earthquake. It's not like a tornado where sometimes you have no warning or you just have a few seconds warning. So on the positive side, we had warning. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I hope I can pass on as wisdom to the youth of today. Uh, back when Hurricane Andrew came through, you know, I was 32 years old. Um, and I can tell you that I prepared for several hurricanes before then. We go through the hurricane prep, which is a ton of work. You got to take down all the tarps. You got to put away all the, you know, the wheelbarrows, all the shovels. You got to put away all the dumpsters. It is so much work. You got to trim back all the trees, you know, and what happened up until that time is we did all this work and it always turned out to be nothing, you know, and after a while you get really frustrated. You go, God bless America. And I remember so vividly during this preparation for this storm, we're killing ourselves. Now remember hurricane season is summer here in Florida. So it's already hot, humid and miserable. So you're out there killing yourself, doing all this work, taking down all the tarps and you think, and I remember I was next to an elderly volunteer guy, probably in his seventies. And I said, you know what? this hurricane better come this time because I'm tired of doing this work for nothing. And he looked at me with a very serious face and he looked at me and he said, young man, be careful what you wish for. Because if this storm comes, I can tell you, it's gonna destroy things. And I looked at him again, this cocky, self-centered guy who thinks that, oh, you know what? This is, you know, like my dad used to tell me, when I was your age, I walked to school bare feet in the snow for five miles. You know, I'm a, he's, just, he's just exaggerating because back then, of course, everything must have been worse than it was for us. Well, let me tell you something. I remember after Hurricane Andrew finding that volunteer and profoundly apologizing to him because if anything, he understated uh, what happened. You know, the bottom line is that I learned that you can never, ever underestimate the power of nature to destroy things. Now, on the flip side, Corbin, and on a very positive side, when I came here to the zoo that day after the storm, I thought everything was either going to be dead or everything was going to be out. I couldn't recognize the zoo. I couldn't find my way back. Landmarks were gone. Oh. And, and quite frankly, I was thinking to myself, you know, if it's one or the other, I hope it's all dead. Because if it's escaped and it's hurt, and we now have added this potential danger to the community that's already devastated because people are out in the middle of the streets. They didn't have a house. Their homes were blown away. It was like, you know, oh my God. it's like it's like nothing to describe something. If we got lions and tigers and bears now hurt and out and scared, now you're compounding the, the problem. Uh, fortunately, that wasn't the case. And what's amazing when I say never underestimate the power of nature to survive, animals just instinctively got through this thing that I could never believe. Uh, I mean, you know, there was, we had a, a black rhino in a big outdoor enclosure and one of the big uh, stock trailers that we used to move our hoof stock uh -huh. was lifted from over a hundred yards away, obviously lifted up in a tornado because there were several tornadoes within this hurricane and dropped inside the pen, upside down, okay? Oh, and you saw huge holes in the chain link fence like cannonballs have been shot through them. And yet this, this rhino was standing in the middle of that pen without a scratch on him. Oh. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. So it, it was pretty incredible. Now, we did prepare. 
And, you know, one of the things I tell people, you know, I think one of the most iconic images, you could probably Google it, was an image I took of the flamingos that we caught up and we put them in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Uh, I actually shared that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, when I took that image, it was like an afterthought. You know, I always used to carry just a little point and shoot on my hip just because things happen at the zoo all the time. You never know you're going to get a good shot of something. And I remember we're catching up all these flamingos because part of the routine was going out to the lake, catching up the flamingos and putting them in the public bathroom in the park because the public bathroom really worked very well. It was a great bunker. No windows, tile floor, easy to clean up. As gross as it sounds, you had toilets there, so you had clean water. We just sure. cleaned out the toilets. Yeah, so the birds had, had water, and they could be protected in there. So that's where we put them all in there. I remember putting them all in there and looking back and thinking, well, that's a sight you don't often see. So I took the picture and never thought about it until after the storm, and I was contacted by news services saying, listen, do you have any interesting animal-related images regarding the hurricane? Because, you know, we've got enough images of houses with no roofs and cars upside down and all this other stuff. I said, you know, I got this image. I don't know. And Newsweek ran it like a two-page spread, and it just went viral after that. Wow. That is – okay. So what other – man, I have so many questions to ask you. I, man, and by the way, you're such a good storyteller. You just like <laughs> took me there. No, you're so good. Okay. Okay, so when you're walking in after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, you're 32 years old, what yeah. is the one animal that you do not want out? And do you do you arm yourself? I mean, I'm serious because you guys yes, have no, no, some absolutely. wild, exotic there, there animals. Were, there was a protocol. There's a protocol. Before I arrived at the zoo, there was a team that actually stayed at the zoo. Oh, okay. um, ironically, they stayed at the zoo because they had to evacuate their homes. Oh. And the zoo, the zoo hospital was built to, you know, withstand any kind of hurricane, basically. So there was a crew that stayed in there. And part of that crew was what we call our shoot team. Okay. Uh, every zoo has a shoot team. God forbid there's any kind of emergency where that shoot team needs to come into practice. Mm -hmm. And part of the protocol was as soon as the storm subsides, that shoot team goes out and surveys the park oh. to make sure that everything is secure or if it's not secure, that there's an alarm put out to be on the lookout for such and such animal. So fortunately, everything was secure. The only things that got out were birds because our aviary collapsed. That's where we experienced the greatest uh, mortality. We had 300 birds in there, of which about 100 of them died oh. because the entire aviary came down like a house of cards. It's since been rebuilt in such a way that it won't come down that way again. One of the, the lessons we learned in the construction of, of things here, you know, the, the, the building code became so... Um, fortified after Hurricane Andrew that, I mean, the strongest homes I think in the country are now built here in, in, in South, uh, Southern Florida because of the hurricane code, the way it was built up. I mean, we literally are living in bunkers now. Um, but having said that, we lost a hundred birds. We did lose a handful of hoofstock that uh, one was killed by flying debris and uh, 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 three of them were killed by just panic, breaking their necks. You know, animals oh. in, in a panic of the storm ran into a fence or ran into a wall and, and broke their necks. Oh. Um, we had a couple of, uh, of, of simings that were out. Oh. Um, but, you know, we basic, and we also had a couple of small dikers that had gotten out. But basically what we did was we just put their food back onto their habitat and they went onto the habitat on their own. And then, Ron, They're, can you explain what a siming is? Because some people might be like, well, a Asaya who? <laughs> a siming is a lesser, lesser ape. It's, uh, it's not you know, a lot of people look at them and think they're monkeys. Anybody who's been to the zoo and heard that, that a lot of people confuse with monkeys. But like I try to tell people, if it doesn't have a tail, can't be a monkey. Oh, my God. OK, so what do you do to prepare for, let's say, large carnivores? 
Okay, and that's a good question. But basically speaking, uh, Corbin, all of our large carnivores are taken off their habitats every night and put into what we call night houses. Okay. And basically here in Zoo Miami, those night houses are made out of poured concrete and welded metal. They have to be made strong enough to contain the strength of the animal itself. So fortunately, all those animals uh, were in those night houses, and those night houses were also strong enough to withstand the force of the hurricane. Uh, they were all fine. We didn't lose any carnivores. None of the carnivores were even uh, injured in any way. They all seemed to survive very well. Uh, things like the big pachyderms, they went into barns. Um, now, the barns for our pachyderms are not enclosed. They have a roof on them. Uh, and they're made with welded metal bars so we can shift animals from one stall to another. Mm -hmm. But because we're in Miami, we don't have to temperature regulate our barns. So we have the, the luxury of being able to keep them open so you have fresh air always blowing through. But having said that, when the hurricane came through, of course, that wind was blowing through there. Now, miraculously, none of those animals were hurt even, either, even though on the black rhino barn, huge poured concrete roof, a whole panel of it was lifted up and flipped over. We're talking about tens of thousands of pounds, Corbin, that was just picked up like it was made out of paper and flipped over. But again, none of these animals had any injuries, which to me, I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, if this is happening around me, I'm thinking the world's coming to an end. I'm thinking you're running, crashing, all kinds of things. These animals just seem to like put their butts to the wind. I mean, people who work with horses, you're out in, in, in Idaho, you know, horses get in a bad storm, they, in, they instinctively put their butts to the wind. You mm -hmm. know, they, 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 and I think all of, I, I observed our, our animals and they seem to do the same thing, where we had cameras where we could see, we, they, that's what they did. They just instinctively just put their butts to the wind and, and braced, and, and they survived. What do you do about crocodilians who are outside in, in outdoor habitats? You know, one of the biggest threats that we have with hurricanes, people always think about the wind, but the biggest threat, of course, is flooding. Uh, flooding causes a huge problem for us here, even when we don't have hurricanes, Corbin. We have, like just yesterday, we had this torrential, I mean torrential tropical uh, downpour that because our exhibits are moated exhibits, you know, we use those moats as uh, barriers to keep the animals on exhibit. And, and really, quite frankly, it's not as much to keep the animals on exhibit as to keep the people off exhibit. Because sure. animals are secure on their exhibits there, you know, but people are not quite as smart sometimes. Um, and what, 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 what happens us with us a lot of times is if that moat level rises too high, it in fact becomes a bridge to get out. Oh my okay, God. An animal can swim across. So we always keep animals indoors when we have these uh, inside their night houses or in their holding pens when we have these massive storms because we don't want to have that bridge created. Now with crocodilians, all of our crocodilian exhibits are pit exhibits. So they're really low. Um, we also have holding pens for the crocodiles. So all the crocodilians can be put into pens, which they are for storms. They're put into pens with eight to 10 foot high chain link fence. If the flooding oh. becomes, they're going to get out of eight to 10 foot ch uh, chain link fence. And I can tell you the flooding is going to be, the crocodiles loose are going to be the least of the problems for the community. So um, it, it's not going to be an issue with the crocodilians. They're, they're very secure. And we have them in pens that are secure to a height of eight to 10 feet. Yeah. And I'm assuming that probably the, do you, I'm sure you guys have a, a reptile house. It's been so long since I've been there. We have, we have what's called a, a, a cloud forest building in our okay. Amazon yeah. building where we have our venomous reptiles and a variety of other amphibians and, and some uh, ectotherms. So yeah, it's not, 
called a reptile house, but mm. it is a primarily uh, herps. Yeah. So, and that would be a pretty safe area, I would assume, for during. That's the, a very safe area. Again, it's all poured concrete. It's all made to withstand these incredible winds because of the building code that we have here now in, in uh, Southern Miami. Um, and all of those buildings are also connected to generators, so all the life system, all the life support systems, are always on backup. Oh my God, this is this. Oh, that's insane. Okay, so Hurricane Andrew was the worst, but in reality, it's it kind of prepped you, you know, prepped the zoo Absolutely. for. Okay, that's I mean, pretty good though, right? We learned a lot of things. I'll tell you what, the, one of the things I think was one of the greatest lessons was that you know we prepared for everything, saying, okay, listen, you know, got to stock up on the food, got to stock up on the water, got to make sure that we uh, secure all the things, got to make sure we have all the medications, you know, everything that we need stocked up, right? What we didn't prepare for was what happens when the storm comes, destroys everything, and all the animals live. What are we going to do with the animals? So what I learned, what we all learned from that storm is we need to have a plan in place, what we call an exit plan for animals. God forbid a storm comes through, destroys the facility, and those animals have to be relocated. We were very fortunate at the time that just north of us we have Lion Country Safari, which is a, a, a wonderful facility. And the, the staff up there, it, it was such, back then cell phones were just coming online. Not everybody had a cell phone. You know, the cell phones looked like these big bricks. They mm -hmm. were monster things. Mm -hmm. um, so we had no real telephone service. I was able, fortunately because of my relationship with the media, uh -huh. uh, I had uh, producers who I knew from the Today Show call me and I said, you need to come down here and see this. And I was on the Today Show, and an interview that was supposed to be three minutes with Katie Couric ended up going over seven minutes. And then they said, you have to come back tomorrow. Our phones are ringing off the hook. And that opened up so many doors, Corbin, because all of a sudden people wanted to help us from all over the country. I mean, we just got this immense amount of aid uh, thrown our way uh, to the point where I actually started diverting aid. We started having people. We had people coming with with uh, with uh, huge trucks full of oh, ice my God. to the zoo, saying, "We're bringing you ice." We saw what you, what happened to the zoo. We are bringing you ice to help you guys out. And I'm saying, "Listen, take the next exit down the turnpike at the Cutler Ridge Mall. There are people in line over there that have nothing." Oh, the animals yeah. are fine now. The animals don't need ice. They don't need to be refreshed. They're used to being outdoors with no electricity in the open air. There are people now that have nothing. And I started diverting those people down there. Wow. Um, we had a guy, Corbin. We called him Action Jackson. Let me tell you about this guy. <laughs> All of a sudden, we have a very big parking lot. The zoo used to be the Richmond Naval Air Station. Oh, okay. Okay. It was a naval base before the property was turned over, it's 740 acres, okay? Of which the parking lot is a huge parking lot because it's where the blimps used to come down. Well, all of a sudden, you know, everybody's working, trying to clean up with the chainsaws, or trying to clear up. We see the small plane circling over the zoo. He comes and he freaking lands in the parking lot. This guy comes out. I don't know if you remember the old, uh, the, the old show, The A-Team with George Papard, okay? <laughs> the guy had a cigar in his mouth, he goes out, he goes, I got some stuff for you. And he brings us a bunch of supplies. He's bringing us like chainsaws. He's bringing us stuff to help out. And I go, what? Wait, he goes, oh, son, I'm going to bring it in here because I know it's hard for the traffic to get in here right now because, you know, all the roads are down and, 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 and uh, you know, the, uh, uh, what do they call The National Guard's out there not letting people through and all this stuff. So if I fly it in, I can get it in and out real quickly. And I'm like, where did you come from? You look like a movie character. He goes, my name is John Jackson. So we're going to call you Action Jackson. He kept coming back, bringing oh, supplies. God. And one day he, he crashed his plane in the parking lot. 
as he was landing, he broke a strut in the parking lot. I go, oh, my God, we go out there. Johnny, you okay? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, but God damn it, I don't know how I'm going to bring supplies now. I got to get this plane out of here and get it fixed, but I'll get back. Don't worry about it. Oh. Was, it's like nothing I've ever seen in my life. I never will forget that man for as long as I live. Um, but that's the kind of help that we got, just people just coming out of the woodwork because they heard what was going on. And that's where I get back to my original point. Lion Country Safari became our our bridge. The only phone that was working, there were no phones at the zoo working. The only phone that was working was this phone at my house. Though we had no electricity, my house was pretty badly damaged. My wife was nine months pregnant with our first child. She became the zoo receptionist because our phone, for some reason, never went down. And she became the receptionist and she started giving me messages and all the things that I needed to do. And she got, uh, I got her connected with Lion Country Safari and Lion Country Safari then became the broker for all of our animals. We had to move our elephants out. We had to move our koalas out. We had to move, so many animals had to go to other facilities. So what we learned, we need to have that plan in place ahead of time. So what I tell zoos now, I said, listen, make sure you have a plan ahead that says, okay, we know if we get destroyed and these animals survive, we're gonna send our chimps here. We're gonna send our, you know, our birds here. We're gonna, you need to have that in place and have that agreement in place with other facilities so that you have an exit plan, because that was the biggest challenge we had. How do we move all these animals out? You know, we fortunate we had people like Bush Gardens, Disney, those people really helped us out in accepting a lot of animals for us that they held for us for months until we could rebuild this place. Yeah, and that's a lot to ask, which as you it can really imagine, is. it's a lot because when you are dealing with, I mean, let's just say elephants. I mean, these are huge pachyderms. You can't just... <laughs> and like, and most facilities just have a facility built for their elephant. So it's like, that is, that's a lot. I mean, my it goodness. It was a lot. And I will tell you this, and I know there's some people that might cringe at this because they don't really know the facility. But uh -huh. the people who took our elephants and did an incredible job caring for them for many months until they returned here. I, was it Ringling? I, I just said Ringling. Really? Ringling took our elephants. They cared for them in an incredible way. They were in fantastic condition oh. when they came back. And, you know, we're, we're very indebted to Ringling because what they do with elephants in their, their farm is really amazing. Really? I was just, you took the words out of my mouth. We just said Ringling. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my so God. Ringling, Ringling took our elephants. Uh, Bush uh, took our flamingos and our koalas. I actually flew them up there in a small plane. Okay. We, we flew up there in a small plane because the air conditioning was done. We didn't have, at the time, we didn't have generators hooked up to the koala barn or anything. These are no. all things that the lessons we learned, how we have to have generators. Sure. Life support system generators throughout the entire zoo. But then we didn't. So I had to get the koalas out. The air conditioning was down. It was sweltering hot. Uh, we had a private pilot fly me out. And I'll never forget because we flew out, had the koalas in the back of the plane, little Cessna, dropped them off and turned right around. And you know, I'll tell you, Corbin, I had flown into Florida, into the peninsula many times on planes, you know, little small planes going back and forth. But this was like surreal to me because as we're flying back, the sun had already set. It's nighttime. And we're flying back, and I saw the coastline of Florida, the eastern coastline, all the way down to, like, North Miami. And then it goes dark. And you it's, like, surreal. You're looking, you're going, it's like the peninsula is not there. There was no power. So there's no lights in what is normally this great beam of light coming from Miami and southern, southern, southern Miami. And it was gone. And we had to land. They had to put, like, these... Um, uh, you know, these uh, generator-based lights to, for us to land. And then when I got off the plane, getting back to the zoo, I had to go through all these 
National Guard checkpoints. It was like a war. These guys said, because nobody was allowed. It was curfew. You were not allowed to be in the streets because they were worried about looting and stuff like that. So I'm driving, and a guy stops me with a you know, freaking machine gun. He's holding like this in front of the National Guard. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, what are you doing on the road? I go, I just brought back these. Oh, and then he recognized me, I guess, from television. He goes, oh, yeah, we just saw on the news you bring the koala. Okay, and then they would escort me all the way to the zoo. It was really, it was, it was a movie. It was a movie of the week. Oh, my God. Dude, they need to make a movie about this. I mean. It really was pretty incredible. Wow. If they made a movie, who would you want to star as you, though? Oh, jeez. I don't know. Some old dude. Not some old dude, but we need someone <laughs> young in your 32s. Maybe. Anyway, no, that's, uh, man, that's, okay. That is, wow. That Okay, so how long did it take, Ron, for Zoo Miami to recover from Hurricane Andrew? Well, if I'm going to tell you really how long to, to truly recover, it was 10 years. Because 10 we didn't reopen, years. We didn't reopen the aviary until 10 years later. Really? We kept the zoo closed for four months. It was four months the zoo had to be closed. When we reopened the zoo, though, we were just a shell of what we once were. We reopened the zoo because people just said, we just want to see where we can help, you know. And people came in here after four months and went, wow. It looked like a plane had crashed into the zoo. That's the best way I can explain it. Like the entire zoo had been just a bunch of planes just crashed into it. Everything was gone. It was like, it's hard to explain to you. I can tell you that I remember coming here and thinking, I don't know if we'll ever recover from this, but we did. And, and ironically, Corbin, I'll tell you this. I've always learned how to make lemonade out of the lemons. The fact is the zoo is the zoo that it is today because of Hurricane Andrew. What Hurricane Andrew did for us was it enabled us to be put on a platform where the world was watching. The people knew who this zoo was, what the zoo was. And when we opened and when we recovered, I think they appreciated the, the commitment, the, the, the absolute dedication that was given by the staff to come from a place that many felt would never be able to recover from. Yeah. And I just, uh, Ron, I have to ask, it's kind of blunt, but how were you able to fund everything? For, I mean, because millions and millions and millions of dollars of exhibits and where is how was the zoo able to gain funds to rebuild the zoo? Well, I will tell you that we got donations from every state in the country and wow. many countries around the world because of mm. the publicity that we got. Having said that, they're eternally grateful also to the people of Miami-Dade County here because we're a Dade County Park. Oh. We're part of the county system. So the county park system and FEMA did a tremendous amount in recovering the funds that we needed to help rebuild the zoo. Uh, and then, you know, you just can't say enough about the public. I mean, you know, I'll say this, Corbin, I say this with profound appreciation, but I hope people understand what I'm saying. It's amazing to me that many times people will do things for animals that they won't do for other people. And I think sometimes that's kind of sad. And I tried to, I tried to, you know, I tried to, to focus people on that. I was saying, listen, we're, we're good. You know, like when the people are delivering a bunch of ice to us, mm -hmm. I'm saying, deliver ice to these people down the road who have nothing, yeah. you know, uh, because I think one of the reasons we were successful, People Magazine did a small, you know, did a little article on me after this whole thing. And one of the things I told them, I, I was quoted, and I, and I got so much positive, positive response when that article came out. I said, you know, as much as I appreciate what people really did, uh, speaking on behalf of the entire staff, to bring us back from oblivion, basically, I think it's important that we never forget that there is no single animal life that's more important than a human life, and that we've got to take care of people first. If we take care of the people the right way, they will in turn take care of the animals. I had to get people's priorities straight. You know, sometimes I'm amazed, Corbin, that 
I'll watch a news story and I'll see them giving this incredible amount of time on the primetime news to a firefighter who rescued some ducklings out of a sewer drain, okay? And yet you don't hear about children who are struggling in some you know, isolated stories of families, good people who have met with horrible circumstances. And it's not that the duck story isn't a wonderful story. You want to bring it up. People need to put things in perspective, too. And I really found that out after the hurricane. Um, you know, people really wanted to do things. Now, having said that, I'll also tell you this. People always say, oh, my God, you ever think about Hurricane Andrew? I mean, that's horrible memories. The irony is the greatest memories I have of Hurricane Andrew are the goodness is the goodness of people. Mm. You know, people talked about looting and stuff. Yeah, there was some of that. There were some isolated jerks. But the overwhelming amount of people were just incredibly generous. For the first time, Corbin, I'm ashamed to say, I got to know all my neighbors on my street. Why? Because we would all go out and put a barbecue in the middle of the cul-de-sac and we all cooked for each other. We all had, you know, meals together. We all started to talk about it because there was nothing else to do. You couldn't be boxed in with your TV. You couldn't be, you know, you, you had no choice but to get out and kind of be a family again. So there's a lot of silver lining to this that people need to look at. Uh, I look at the horrible things happening now with Hurricane Ida and the people are suffering. And I hope that that same kind of compassion rises to the top there and people understand that at the, the heart of everything, people are basically very good. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Okay. So in light of uh, some Hurricane Ida and then I heard about uh, Hurricane Larry. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. What's I hear that starting up now, too. I don't know what's going on with that. I haven't looked at their most recent stuff, but I hear Hurricane Larry is cooking up now. Yeah. Well, listen, listen, you know, back to our feel, to what we do and what I think uh, we've been trying to tell people for a long time now. Mm -hmm. uh, climate change is here. And part of climate change is the severity of, of things like storms. People think climate change is just global warming. No, it's not global warming alone. It's these extremes of things, extreme winters, extreme summers, extreme storms. These are all things that are a product of climate change. And you know, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to the point now where we're starting to see physically what happens due to climate change, but it's not too late. You know, people need to understand there's stuff that we can do to help mitigate this. Uh, you know, and understand that we're never going to stop it, but we can certainly slow it down. Uh, and there are things that all of us can do. And I think that's one of the messages that zoos and people who work with wildlife try to get across is that we are all connected, man. You know, it, it sounds so cliche-ish and stuff. You know, whether it's the freaking bees that pollinate the plants and the fruits that give us the fruits and vegetables we eat, whether it's the, you know, the, the freaking Amazon that provides the oxygen that a lot of us breathe, whether it's the coral reefs that protect our shorelines and feed our oceans, you know, all that stuff, the, the, the rainforest to provide the medicines that cure it's all connected to us. By protecting those things, we are protecting ourselves. And people need to understand that. Unfortunately, a lot of people have to wait for this kind of horrible connection to, you know, slap them in the face to understand, hey, you know, maybe these people are speaking the truth. But, you know, you shouldn't deny science, man. No. And I think that's part of this, what we do. We, we try to, we try to make science palatable for people by getting them to care about this wildlife. Yes. And Ron, for just for listeners, what, what simple things can they do to uh, fight, you know, climate change, global warming. I mean, it's, it's you know, listen, here. <laughs> it, 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 it's looking, it's looking at your carbon footprint, you know, mm. looking at, you know, turn off the light switch when you're not using it. Don't overuse water, conserve water. Uh, you know, don't buy a freaking gas guzzling vehicle. Try to look mm. at, at electronic vehicles. Now electric vehicles are becoming much more popular, much greater. You know, that, that helps with the carbon footprint. Mm. Another thing I got to tell people, and, and this is a, surprises a lot of people, 
look at what you eat. Yeah. Look at what you eat. Because what we, what it costs the environment, just, and, and don't get me wrong, I love a good steak, okay? But I've cut down a lot on red meat because just producing beef, what it does to the environment between methane and everything else mm -hmm. is pretty catastrophic, you know? We need to look at becoming a little bit more friendly in our diets. What we eat and what it takes to uh, produce the food that we eat can make a really big difference. Mm -hmm. So even something simple like maybe meatless Mondays or not eating as exactly. much beef. Exactly. Just slowly. Yeah. We're, not, we're not asking to change the world overnight, but if everybody makes these little changes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, recycling things, try not to use these plastic straws. And oh. again, you know, we always hear about the plastic straws. Like that's the big poster child for plastics, <laughs> right? The reality is. It's not the plastic straws that are as bad as fishing nets, fishing lines, all those things. When you look at really what's making up the, the, the plastic pollution in the ocean, it's those things, okay? The microplastics are being found in everything, Corbin, from birds to turtles to fish, the stuff we eat. I mean, it, it, it really is. It's alarming when you think about it. So people, by just cutting down on those types of things, you know, instead of using plastic forks and knives all the time for throwaway, buy a knife and wash it. Use it again. <laughs> you know, just, you know, just and, and don't wash it by letting the faucet run forever and then run it that way. You know, condense your washing. Make sure you're doing these things in a frugal way. And I tell you, if everybody did a little bit of that, it'd make a huge difference. Wow. Ron, that is awesome. Well, uh, what, is there anything else you can say that maybe any facilities preparing for the upcoming hurricanes? Any, you know, yes. anything you could say to their staff preparing for I this? You, you know, you will get through it. But if I had a give you a piece of advice on getting one piece of equipment, making sure you had it lined up. The one piece of equipment that I found to be the most valuable piece of equipment at the zoo after the hurricane, refrigerator trucks. Make sure you make, make an arrangement, not with a refrigerator truck in your city, okay, but make sure it's at least 100 miles away and make the reservation, even if you gotta put money down It'll be so worth it because we were lucky because when I went on the Today Show, this this company up in Palm Beach heard about it and they delivered to us two refrigerator trucks that Corbin, we lived out of. Not only were we able to put our food and stuff in there, we were able to keep our ice in there. They were refrigerator freezer trucks. They ran on a generator. So we were able to maintain food, ice, water. Those were so valuable. Medicines, everything was maintained in those refrigerator trucks. But again, you don't want to make the rental from the U-Haul down the street because what happens when the hurricane comes? Those refrigerator trucks get ruined true. You see, they get everything gets destroyed in your neighborhood. You gotta make sure you have stuff reserved in another area that can then be driven down to you. God forbid you get destroyed by the storm and you have it there. Because our freezers, our walk-in freezer, our walk-in refrigerator, it was all leveled by the hurricane. It was all gone. Had we not had those refrigerator trucks, we would have been in really bad shape. Uh, we lived out of those refrigerator trucks. so. My one hint to institutions is, even if you think, listen, I got generators, we're going to keep it running. If it destroys the, 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 the containment itself, it doesn't matter if you've got generators, okay? Make reservations for those refrigerator trucks ahead of time. Even like I say, if you got to throw down a few hundred dollars, look at it as an insurance policy, okay? God forbid it hits your place. You say, hey, I got those babies reserved because I can tell you, once the hurricane comes, there won't be any of those things available. <laughs> Wow. Oh my gosh. Ron, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have a couple minutes to join me for the after show? Sure. Okay. Awesome. Ron, and where can people follow you if they want to learn more about you, Zoo Miami? Uh, uh, my Twitter, I think, is at Ron McGill Conservation. 
Uh, no, it's at Ron. It's at Ron McGill is my Twitter, and uh, at Ron McGill Conservation is Instagram, and then uh, we have at ZooMiami.org is all, you know, all the zoo stuff on there too. Yeah, I need to get you on TikTok, Ron. Oh God, Corbin! Look, this is where I'm telling you how old I am. No, okay? we need to get you on TikTok. No, no, Corbin, Come Corbin, on, dude, Corbin! Every time I turn on TikTok, it's some person going like this. Hold, no, it's not. Hold on. I'll show you my TikTok page. I promise. I don't dance. I'm a horrible dancer and I don't lip sync. <laughs> okay, because every time my, uh, my daughter shows me this TikTok stuff and I go, listen, that stuff is like, it's, it's, it's brain rot. Okay, that's brain rot. Stop <laughs> looking at that stuff. <laughs> All right. All right, Rod. Thank you so much. Audience, if you want to join us for the after show, just head to patreon.com slash animals to the max. I will put the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.